And the starting point for democratic politics is an acknowledgement, or at least an agreement, that those people who have different views than you have a right to those views, and those views have to be taken account of. Historian H.W. Bram's new book uses the lives of abolitionist John Brown and President Abraham Lincoln to argue for compromise. People criticize Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves while writing the Declaration of Independence. If he had not been a slaveholder from Virginia, he never would have been asked to write the Declaration of Independence. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. How does a good man challenge a great evil? How can a man of God confront the work of Satan? Those are the opening lines of H.W. Brand's gripping new book. It details how two Americans grappled with the great evil of slavery in markedly different ways. Both John Brown and Abraham Lincoln were morally opposed to slavery. But Lincoln believed in politics, in compromise, in finding allies where he could. Brown believed in violence, if necessary. His audacious raid on the federal arsenal in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, proved that. And it made Brown a martyr for the abolitionist cause. As author H.W. Brands explains in his new book, it's called The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. H.W. Brands is the featured attraction at a St. Louis County event tomorrow that's happening virtually. And he joins us today to discuss the book and the event. So, Bill, welcome. Hi, Sarah. Great to talk to you. So not all of our listeners likely remember American history class. Why did John Brown raid the arsenal in Harper's Ferry? John Brown had committed himself to defeating slavery, to doing whatever was necessary to rid America of slavery. He had taken it on small scale, sort of a retail version earlier. He had joined with the Underground Railroad to spirit individual slaves away to Canada. Mm-hmm. He had gone to Kansas in the 1850s in, amid a fight between pro-slavery settlers and anti-slavery settlers to determine the future of a, uh, to determine the fate of a future state of Kansas. Would it be a slave state or a free state? And then in 1859, he decided that he was going to launch a larger effort to free the slaves. The federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry in Virginia, now it's West Virginia, mm-hmm. held thousands of weapons. And he intended to distribute these weapons among slaves in the vicinity of Harper's Ferry. And with Brown's encouragement and with these weapons, they would rise up against their masters and forcibly, perhaps violently, seize their freedom. They would set an example for slaves elsewhere in the South. And John Brown hoped that it would lead to a general uprising and the end of slavery in the United States. Hmm. Well, as I learned in your book, uh, news accounts at the time made it sound initially like he might be well on his way. One of these news accounts said he had as many as 500 black men with him. But that, as you write, was far from the case. How many people did he have as he's making this raid on this federal property? He had about two dozen with him. (laughs) And some were more reluctant than others. Uh, But they followed him. John Brown had a strange kind of magnetism, a personal charisma, that caused people to be drawn to him and to his cause. And he was utterly convinced of the rectitude of what he was doing. And this caused other people to quiet the doubts they had. They all agreed that slavery was wrong, Mm -hmm. but some of them had doubts whether John Brown's brand of violence was the right way to go. Now, one of the people who resisted John Brown's entreaties was Frederick Douglass, the Mm -hmm. famous abolitionist, who had been a slave himself before escaping. And John Brown tried to get Frederick Douglass to join him. 
Brown realized that having someone of Douglas's stature and Douglas's background on board this effort against Harper's Ferry would lend it huge legitimacy. But Frederick Douglass concluded this was a suicide mission. Mm-hmm. It would never succeed. And in fact, if anything, it would probably fasten the shackles upon Southern slaves even tighter because it would certainly fail, but it would alarm Southern slaveholders. And they would diminish what very small amount of freedom any slaves ever had. Hmm. As you make clear in this book, the actual events there in Harper's Ferry, this was a fiasco. And in reading this book, um, John Brown reminded me more of Eamon Bundy, that rancher who occupied a wildlife refuge in, in I think it was Oregon, than a master right. strategist. How did he think this was all going to work? I, I guess you have to wonder, was John Brown crazy? No, he wasn't crazy. He he perhaps was carried too far by his convictions. Mm-hmm. Now, he did believe that God was on his side. Now, if that makes a person crazy, then that's a separate thing. There's a lot of but Americans he, then in, in trouble. Yeah, yeah. And, but the thing is that John Brown overestimated the willingness of ordinary slaves to put their own lives on the line for a dubious chance at freedom. John Brown thought, I'm putting my life on the line, and it's not even my, my freedom that I'm working for. And John Brown imagined, if I were a slave, I would certainly risk all for freedom. But the slaves who looked at John Brown's project and said, first of all, who is this guy? And what does he think he's doing? What is he arming us with? Uh, John Brown was never able to distribute real weapons from the federal arsenal. He was pinned down. But he did out of his own pocket, more precisely, out of the pockets of his philanthropist friends who gave him money, he gave them pikes. These are just sticks with blades on the end. And with these, they were supposed to defeat the armies of Virginia and the militia and everybody who was going to prevent them from getting their freedom. Mm-hmm. From the slave's perspective, John Brown was crazy. Now, in his own terms, he wasn't quite crazy, but he had no sense of the difficulties that he was confronting. Yeah, I mean, this is just, it's, it's, it's a head-scratcher today. You know, and as you point out the strategy of what he was thinking, how he could hold this particular site, it certainly wasn't set up in a way that, that would have made it possible to hold it. And, and in the moment, this raid was a complete bust, and yet it ended up really seizing the imagination of the nation. Why do you think that was? Well, from the standpoint of northern abolitionists, most of whom were not direct action types, most of whom were literary types, philosophical types, you could call them armchair abolitionists. From their perspective, John Brown had the courage of physical action that they knew they didn't have. And so they admired his courage and his forthrightness. Mm. And when he was captured and tried, condemned and executed, they held him up as a martyr. This was a man, some of them were, went so far as to liken him to Jesus Christ, who gave his life for the greater good. Now, that was the attitude among certain people in the North, not among everybody in the North. Anti-slavery feeling in the North was by no means as widespread as it would become Mm -hmm. in the course of the Civil War. And a whole lot of people in the North said, don't blame me for John Brown. Abraham Lincoln was one of those. He said, John Brown is not one of us. He's not a Republican. But it was in the South that John Brown's actions had the greatest effect because, precisely because he was so lionized in the North, 
The South looked upon this guy, first of all, as a murderer and a terrorist, someone who was trying to incite their slaves to rebellion in which they might all be killed in their beds. And now he was being, he was being made a hero and a saint in the North. And many Southern slaveholders and Southern whites generally concluded that if this is the kind of person that the North is holding up to adulation, then there is no hope for us remaining in the Union. And it really cemented secessionist sentiment in much of the South. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, you mentioned that, that Lincoln did not welcome this. I think you used uh, the word in your book that Lincoln groaned when he heard about this. And it was fascinating to see how this became a political issue for Lincoln in the same way that we see violence become an issue today. People were asking Lincoln to condemn this when he had nothing to do with it. It, it just felt like, on you know, if this was happening in 2020, people would be tagging Lincoln on Twitter saying, Lincoln, when will you denounce this man? I mean, did you see those parallels there as, as you were exploring Lincoln's response to this? Well, as a matter of fact, I finished the drafting of the book before the last several months. But nonetheless, yes, they're quite pertinent. And it kind of gets at the question of if you are on the right side of a moral issue or on the right side of history, does that then give you license to do whatever you think will further the cause? And Lincoln was saying no. Lincoln was saying that John Brown's actions are in fact counterproductive. Now, Lincoln had two reasons for saying that. One is Lincoln thought he had an inside track to the Republican nomination for president in 1860, the next year. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, anybody could just do the arithmetic of the Electoral College then and realize that any reasonable candidate who got the Republican nomination would be the next president of the United States. So Lincoln's first reaction to John Brown was, He's going to spoil my chances of becoming the next president. But beyond that, Lincoln still hoped that the slavery issue could be resolved peacefully, that there would be some kind of peaceful resolution of the issue. Lincoln observed the fact that slavery had existed in every state of the Union at the time of independence, and now it existed only in the southern states. The northern economies had outgrown slavery, and Lincoln hoped that the southern economies would do so as well. He certainly didn't want to see a civil war, and he thought that Brown's actions made secession and a civil war more likely. We're talking to H.W. Brands. His new book is The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. And this just, it feels like just such a brilliant idea to put John Brown together with Abraham Lincoln. We can understand their reactions to this great evil best in contrast with each other. But this seems like something that, that no one's ever done before. What gave you the idea? Were you first looking at one and then took a detour into the other? Well, to be honest, I have been teaching about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. I teach at the University of Texas at Austin. And as a way to engage my students in issues of the past, I ask them to imagine that they were this person or that person, or, and what would you do in this person's shoes? And I've used John Brown and Abraham Lincoln as these alternate choices for a person who is opposed to slavery. And so this, this began as an exercise, a pedagogical exercise in my classes. And the students responded to it, and, and, and the more I, the longer I teach American history and the more I think about it, the more I convince that the essential questions of history are the timeless ones of, well, like the one that you introduced at the beginning of this segment and that I introduced the book with, is what does an honest moral man do when his country is engaged in a great evil? Because we confront this. Now, when I was 
preparing, drafting this book, I wasn't thinking of the current moment and the reaction to the George Floyd killing and all this stuff that's been happening the last several months. But I was thinking generally, and I thought, for example, when I was in college, the Vietnam War was a big issue, and a lot of people, including me, thought it was immoral. But so what do you do? Do you march in protest? Do you, I mean, it's the certain extreme groups, you know, lit bombs yeah. and set off stuff to get, so how far can you take a good cause without crossing the line into one, counterproductivity, and then two, an evil of its own? Mm -hmm. And John Brown really gets us there. But it's also, it's also this, again, a timeless question of how does progress occur? Is progress made by the zealots, the ones who are on the extreme? Because they always risk creating a backlash. And this is a question that we have to ask right now. And, you know, is or is it the moderates, the ones who say, wait a minute, we have to work through the system. And if we work through the system, we will make change that will stick, that will last. So it's a question that never goes away. There is a part in this book where you you grapple with that, and this part just gave me the chills. I think it sort of brings together everything that you do such a great job of drawing out throughout this book. You write, Lincoln appreciated irony, the mischief life plays on human designs. Doubtless he noted the irony that increasingly tied him to John Brown. The Kansas Slayer and Harper's Ferry Raider had embraced violence in the struggle against slavery, while Lincoln had condemned it. Lincoln chose instead the peaceful path of democratic politics, but Lincoln's path had by now, and, and this was in the midst of the Civil War, had by now led to a slaughter a thousand times greater than anything John Brown ever committed. So Lincoln wanted to avoid, um, you know, this level of violence, and yet the Civil War was one of the bloodiest things that ever happened. That, that irony there, I don't know that I'd ever thought about it that way before. Yeah, well, this was something that Lincoln grappled with, and it's really striking to observe Lincoln during the course of the Civil War, because before the war begins, he hopes that it can be averted. And then once it begins, he hopes that it can be short. But as it grows longer and it grows bloodier, he begins to believe that this is, that he is at the mercy of forces beyond his control. Before he became president, Lincoln was never explicitly religious. But he became more religious in the course of the war, I think largely because he could not bear to shoulder the responsibility for all of these deaths hmm. himself. And he, he concluded that, that God must have willed this to happen, or at least God was allowing this to happen, because it was more than he, as one man, could bear. Hmm. You know, the other thing in your book that, that struck me and something I just had not been aware of at all, we think of emancipation as being a done deal if the Union won this war. And your book makes clear that wasn't the case at all. Do you think if another Republican had been in the White House during the Civil War, not Abraham Lincoln, that question could have easily gone a different way? It depends on who the Republican was. So there were Republicans who were more advanced on the emancipation issue than Lincoln was. And so mm -hmm. if, if one of them, William Seward, for example, had been president, then emancipation might have come sooner. But there were those who were more conservative than Lincoln was. And if one of them had been president, then it's hard to say. Lincoln started the Civil War from the Union side saying that this is not about slavery at all. This is entirely about preserving the Union. And Lincoln's position up until the issuance of the, um, the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in the autumn of 1862 was that if the South will rejoin the Union, then Virginia, Georgia, Mississippi, those states can have slavery as long as they like. 
and because he thought that was within their constitutional authority to keep slavery as long as they liked. Mm -hmm. But it was only as the war went on and on, and then he realized that actually one of the worst things that might happen is precisely if the war would end with slavery still in place. We might have to do this all over again in another five or ten years. And so he then issued the Emancipation Proclamation on his authority as commander-in-chief. But he knew that as soon as the war ends, his authority as commander-in-chief goes away. And he could bet, as a lawyer, that if that happened, then all sorts of slaveholders in the South would sue for the return of their slaves. And they might have legal grounds for getting the slaves back. And then where would the country be? So he insisted, in fact, at the moment he issued the Emancipation Proclamation saying, and we're going to move directly toward a constitutional amendment which will, ever for end, which will forever end slavery in the United States. Because he knew that was the way you definitively would end slavery. <laughs> and he was pleased that it, it was well on the way to passage by the time he was killed. Of course, he didn't expect to, to get killed. But when he was assassinated, it was essentially a done deal by then. Yeah, the political matrix that he was dealing with is so much more complicated than many of us today looking back on this were aware of. And it's interesting because we have seen Lincoln come under fire um, in our current environment. I know his statue was recently toppled in Portland. It was part of a day of rage. He doesn't always come across great in this book. If I wanted to come through it and, and just cherry pick some parts to, to get people riled up on Twitter and say Abe Lincoln was a terrible man who, you know, who felt things in terrible ways, I could easily find those in this book. And yet, ultimately, he achieved this emancipation. Do you think he deserves credit as the great emancipator? Oh, I think he does. And here's why. If Lincoln had had the views that would make him pass muster with liberals today, mm -hmm. he never would have been elected president. To be president in 1860, in the 1860s, he had to understand the position of people who lived then. This is both one of the strengths and one of the weaknesses of a democratic political system. You cannot get elected, you cannot get in a position to make change even for the better unless you share certain of the views, even of the prejudices of your day. If Lincoln had the views of a 21st century liberal, no one ever would have considered him at all. Mm -hmm possible for a president. And so without those views for which Lincoln is criticized today, he wouldn't have been able to emancipate any slaves. And that's the way it always is. People criticize Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves while writing the Declaration of Independence. If he had not been a slaveholder from Virginia, he never would have been asked to write the Declaration of Independence. So if you are going to be serious about progress, you have to understand that progress comes with people who have one foot firmly in their own time, maybe the other foot can be ahead, but they can't have both feet ahead because then they never will have any standing in their own moment. Hmm. You know, one of the other things when you, you think about compromise and people passing muster with, with today's politics, it was also interesting to me that Lincoln owed his election as president to the fact that slavery proponents and Southerners proved incapable of compromise, that they kept meeting and meeting and couldn't come up with a candidate they were willing to get behind it. Is that part of the dark side, maybe, of John Brown-style purity of purpose, that at some points you have to compromise just to put your best man forward, even if you can't agree on who it is? Well, we certainly hope that we haven't reached that stage in American politics now. It feels and like it sometimes. Sort of, <laughs> I know, I know exactly. And this is why people who are on the, the cutting edge, the outer edge of whatever reform movement, they need to look very closely and ask themselves, do you want progress or do you want just this sense that you're right? Is it better to be right or to be effective? Because 
Politics is the realm of being effective. You know, you are a good politician if you can move the needle in the direction you want it to go. But that often means compromising with people who disagree with you. And, and the starting point for democratic politics is an acknowledgement, or at least an agreement, that those people who have different views than you have a right to those views, and those views have to be taken account of. You can't simply say the other side is evil, because once you do that, then you're out of the realm of politics and into something else entirely, and you'll not get anything done. Hmm. So this book, to some extent, is an argument for compromise. It is. It is. Don't get carried away by your righteous causes. Maintain that moral sense, but also keep one foot firmly grounded in the realm of the possible. Well, it's such a good read. Um, I just enjoyed this so much. I learned so much from it. Um, And that book, again, for those who are listening, that book is The Zealot and the Emancipator. It's John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. And its author, H.W. Brands, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Great to talk with you, Sarah. Thanks. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.